itself. And in fact, if you track through the scriptures, you see food pop up again and again in the worship of the people of God. Like the Jewish people, like the, one of the biggest celebrations they had in the year, Passover, celebrating freedom from slavery. What did they do? They had a meal. Like every now and then throughout the Jewish calendar, there were sort of festivals and pretty much all of them culminated in some kind of a, like, a blowout, like a big meal. You'd save up, you'd bring the best, um, everyone kind of pull it all together. You'd have this incredible meal, this celebration. Why? Because food helped them worship God and remember him and encounter him. Jesus himself, in giving us, you know, possibly the central act of worship for his church, what does he do? He gives us something to remember him by. He gives us something in which he meets us, and he gives us something through which he sustains us spiritually. And how does he give that to us? Through a meal, communion, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, whatever you call it in your tradition. Like food is this incredibly good gift from God. Now, we're in this series, um, you can see, um, we're calling The Practice of Simplicity. Um, if you missed my talk a couple of weeks ago, go back and listen to it because it's a bit of a primer for kind of the practice. But when we say practice, we mean spiritual practice. A spiritual practice is something that we do practically that, that helps open us up to what God wants to do in our lives. And the practice of simplicity is just the practice of doing something less or doing something a bit more simply, you know, kind of narrowing the options a bit. And the reason we do that is not because it achieves anything in and of itself, but because it opens us up to God speaking to us. How does it do that? As you do something less, you allow God to show you the ways in which you depended on it in unhealthy ways. You allow God the way, uh, to reveal to you where you've perhaps got an unhealthy relationship to it. Maybe you're using it therapeutically. Maybe there's an addictive pattern there. You allow God to reveal to you what's really going on beneath the surface of your life um, and the ways in which maybe you use stuff and things of this world to distract you from the reality of what's going on within you such that he can meet you, heal you, and change you into the kind of person who can be more of a blessing to others. That's the essence of the practice of simplicity. And you remember, like, I don't know if you've sort of read through the Bible, but throughout the kind of New Testament, the, um, the writers of the New Testament talk about something a lot. And they talk about this thing called the world. The world. And they warn against it. The world is always this like bad thing that we're being warned against. Warned against its influence. Warned against its impact. And the world in the writers of the scriptures is not kind of um, you know, the globe like we live in. But when they say the world, what they mean is they mean the kind of arena of culture. The arena of culture where ways of living apart from God and ways of living apart from the ways that God has kind of revealed for us to live, his, his good ways of life, are, are normalized, celebrated, and promoted. Ways of living apart from God are normalized, celebrated, and promoted. And the reason that they warn us against that is because when you live in a culture where all around you, a way of living apart from God is normalized, celebrated, and promoted, it's incredibly easy for that, whatever it is, that value, that way of thinking, that habit, to become something that you kind of imbibe, that becomes part of how you function, and you probably won't even spot it. You probably won't even spot there's a problem. Why? Because it feels really plausible. Because everyone around you is doing it, so why would there be a problem? And the extreme example of that played out in kind of life um, would be the slave trade. The slave trade was a kind of heinous evil 
that blighted this earth. The idea that one human being could own another is just antithetical to the kind of message of the scriptures where we're created as co-equals with inherent value. And yet, whilst we kind of get that today, and that seems obvious, if you'd lived a few hundred years ago, that perhaps wouldn't have occurred to us. Society had normalized slavery. Like most, lots of people owned slaves, and no one thought anything of it. No one questioned it. Um, people just did it. If we were a church living hundreds of years ago, we may well have had people that owned slaves in here, and we'd have probably thought nothing of that. Because it was normalized, it was celebrated, and it was promoted in the culture, in the world, and so it wasn't something that people thought, oh gosh, that's a problem. And like, if that can happen on the extreme end of something that today we can really easily recognize as evil and problematic, how much more can that happen within areas of life that perhaps aren't on that extreme end, but that perhaps still have a kind of toxifying impact on us as human beings. And I want to look today at food. And I want to look at the practice of simplicity and how that might help us with that. Why might this good gift from God, this incredible thing, food, potentially be problematic? You know, the essence of any good gift is it can be misused, right? Any good thing from God can be, we can have an unhealthy relationship with it. We can, you know, act towards it in a way that isn't good for us. And Jesus kind of warns us of this. Jesus in John 6 is teaching and he's just fed the 5,000, this incredible miracle. Everyone's been fed and he, he kind of takes himself off and they go and find him. They're looking for him and he says, look, you're looking for me for the wrong reasons. You're looking for me for the wrong reasons. He says, don't work for food that spoils, but work instead for food that endures to eternal life. And what's Jesus saying there? He's not saying, starve yourself. It doesn't matter. All you need to do is pray. No, he's saying there's a prioritization here. Like, I am the true food source. I am the one who truly will sustain you even more than actual food will. Actual food really is something that points to me. You know, he, he is recognizing that there can be a misprioritization of the role of food in our lives. I want to read a scripture um, uh, from Philippians. Philippians 3, uh, reading from verse 17. So Paul's writing to a church. He says this. He says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He goes on. He says their destiny is destruction. That's not a good thing. What does that mean? It means that they're becoming increasingly less human. They're becoming deformed increasingly. They're becoming less of the people they're created to be. Carry that on into eternity. You get destruction. Their destiny is destruction. He says their God is their stomach. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach. What does it mean for your God to be your stomach? Because for your God to be your stomach, as Paul writes, is kind of a pathway to destruction, deformation, dehumanization. Like for your God to be your stomach, what does that mean? Well, it means that 
when your stomach speaks, you listen. When your stomach speaks, you act. In other words, it controls you, you don't control it. To put it another way, for your God to be your stomach is that you are becoming a person who is increasingly kind of marked by self-indulgence. I love what the, um, the writer Jan Johnson, I plugged her book a couple of weeks ago, um, Abundant Simplicity. It's a book that's on this practice of simplicity. Um, I love what she writes about self-indulgence. She says, self-indulgence corrupts the soul. Self-indulgence corrupts the soul. Why? Because it trains us to not be satisfied unless we get what we want. Self-indulgence corrupts the soul because it trains us to not be satisfied unless we get what we want. To put that in the, writers, uh, the words of the writers of the scriptures, it's about denying yourself versus kind of indulging yourself. And why then might I want to talk about this in kind of relation to food? Like, why might this even be a problem? I think the reason this is a problem is, is for this reason. If I want right now, I can get my phone out. And um, m this is kind of a good thing in many ways. This isn't a complete bad. Hear me out. I can pull up Deliveroo or Uber Eats, and I can order, like, from the restaurant of my choice across the city. I can flick through loads of glorious pictures of different meals and order whatever I want, and it can arrive before the end of the service. Incredible. Like, I can go to Sainsbury's, and I can choose between, like, 30 different varieties of pasta. Like, if I go to the cake aisle, I am assaulted on kind of all sides by, like, hundreds of different delights and delicacies and flavors and tastes that are just screaming out, I'm delicious, please eat me. Like, very soon, um, the Christmas food adverts are going to hit TV. I'm not sure they've started yet, but uh, does anyone else basically feel hungry for a period of about two months? Like, you know, you watch and it's like this M&S is the worst, right? Um, you know, this salted caramel bomb uh, with, you know, a butter sauce and a Madagascan vanilla custard that is being poured unusually slowly on top in a way that makes it taste better in my mind. You know, and then there's this turkey that glistens in a way that I've never ever seen a turkey glisten. They always look a bit dry, but the one on the telly glistens and it's surrounded by beautifully kind of wrapped sausages with bacon and a gravy that's like just the right consistency, not too runny, no one wants that, but not too thick, that's glue. And, and the right color of brown, because nobody likes a kind of yellow gravy, it's disgusting. And it's just screaming out, kind of, eat me, have me. You know, we, we live in a culture, in other words, that has normalized the practice of self-indulgence, that promotes the practice of self-indulgence, that celebrates the practice of self-indulgence when it comes to food. And so... It's quite natural and normal for us living in this world to think, I fancy a biscuit. I'm going to have a biscuit. To think, I, I, I want this. I'm going to have this. And it's at our fingertips. We can have it. It's instantly available. And, 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 and culture says, well, if you want that, treat yourself. Have it. Why not? Go for it. What's the problem with that? The problem that I think is twofold. One, when self-indulgence becomes something that regularly marks the way we operate in relation to food, very quickly, we, we, you know, it's, we train ourselves to not be satisfied until we get what we want. And what happens if you train yourself to not be satisfied until you get what you want or something? That's a practice of enslavement. You see, the kind of 
cultural narrative of freedom runs something like this. It says, freedom is the ability to be who you want to be, have what you want to have, and do what you want to do. And oppression, therefore, is anything that inhibits you from having that or doing that. I want to suggest that that's not a definition of freedom, it's a definition of slavery. Because if you need something in order to be okay, if you have to have something, then you have a relationship of dependency with it. True freedom, I think, as the writers of the scriptures would define it, is the ability to go without that which you want. Go without that which you desire, but still be satisfied, still be okay, still be content. And so when self-indulgence becomes a regular practice with food, we train ourselves to not be content unless we have that little something, unless that glass of wine, that whatever it is, that kind of diet marked by variety and excitement. We train ourselves to depend on these things, and easily, subtly, it can take on an unhealthy role in our life. And the second thing that that can tip into is food can become something that is therapeutic. What do I mean by that? I mean that food can become something that we use therapeutically to soothe ourselves, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. You know, we come in from work, it's been a stressful day. Um, we're feeling tired, we're feeling exhausted, we need a bit of a lift, so what do we do? We crack open the biscuits and we have one, it makes us feel a bit better. And food will do that. Like, li literally, physiologically, it will do that to you because when you um, have a kind of nice sugary snack, something tasty, your brain will release some of the neurotransmitter chemical of dopamine, the pleasure chemical, that will give you a kind of momentary lift. It will make you feel better. The problem is, of course, is it dies off and you're left back where you were. Like when you start to use food therapeutically, it, it kind of just covers over the problems. You know, if you've come home from work stressed and you use food to make yourself feel better, if you're feeling down in life at the moment and you just use the donuts and the glass of wine to make yourself feel better, it doesn't really solve the problem. It's a bit like if I was to cut my leg open right now, cut a major blood vessel, blood spurting out, it's a real mess, like I'm dying, panic stations, like it would be possible to dose me up suitably on painkillers that I would feel great, that I'd feel marvellous. The pain would go, I'd be like, yes, but I'd still be dying. The problem when something takes on a therapeutic role in our life is that whilst it gets rid of the pain, it doesn't get rid of the problem. It merely covers it over. And in doing so, we therefore become blind to what's going on beneath the surface, and we don't therefore turn to the one who we need the one who satisfies our soul, the only one in whom we can find forgiveness and freedom, and that is, of course, Jesus. Jesus. And this is where I think this practice of simplicity can help us. Because the practice of simplicity is about doing less. So as we do less of something, as we simplify our diet in a way, whether we do that, and often this stuff's like experimental, you can do it for a week, you can do it for a month, you strip back some of the layers of distraction, of noise, and you allow Jesus to show to you where there's an unhealthy dependence, or not, as the case may be, where there's a way in which you've started using something therapeutically, and actually there's a pain there, a dissatisfaction, a discontent in your soul that can only be met in him, but that you've been trying to fulfill in something else. As I said at the beginning, um, I love food. And because I love food, it's... Um, it's one of my Achilles. Um, and so this is something that I can often find myself in regularly. Just um, a few months ago, um, I, well, 
I was about to say I noticed, I didn't notice, God pointed out, um, that sort of I had dinner every evening, as we do, and um, after dinner, I'd find myself really just like feeling a bit like, oh, I don't feel like I've finished. I feel like I need something else just to kind of like, you know, complete the meal, top me up, like me feel good. And so I'd, I'd literally every evening root around the cupboards, like, you know, dig around just for like, just something, like a bit of chocolate or you know, find like half a pudding that we froze a month ago in the, in the freezer. Just because, I don't know, I just didn't feel quite like finished, I guess. And God brought this to me, atten- my attention. He was like, Will, why do you do that? And he, he sort of asked me to just practice simplicity just for a couple of weeks in this. And what that looked like is, I just, other than one day a week, I didn't have anything kind of sweet after my, I just had my main meal and stopped. And what was amazing is I found myself, like, a couple of days in, craving something sweet. Like, really craving it, just feeling kind of, like, a bit anxious. Like, oh, my, it was almost like I'm in, within me, the kind of inner narrative was, but I need this. Like, and there was a kind of anxiety that rose. And, and Jesus was just revealing to me, in and through that practice, that I'd taken on an unhealthy dependence on this food to feel okay. I'd used it to alleviate my stress rather than coming to him and finding my rest and my freedom. I'd used it to cover over problems in my life. And there was an anxiety that was present there that I was ignoring rather than turning to God for. And, and so how might you practice this practice of simplicity? How might you give it a go? And what I would say is I would encourage you have a bash. Like, the, the, you know, this is, it's not virtuous to practice a spiritual practice, but it's just, it just opens us up to what God might want to say to us. And, you know, it might be that we haven't got an unhealthy dependence of food. Great. It might be you're not using it therapeutically. Great. That's amazing. But it might be you are, but you haven't noticed, possibly because everyone around you is doing it, and so therefore you don't spot it for what it is. How might you practice this? First thing, um, and then I'll suggest sort of three ways. Uh, What I would say is, if you're someone who does or has in the past struggled with um, an eating disorder, there is, first of all, zero shame in that. Um, But secondly, I'd really advise that you probably don't practice this. Or if you do, that would be something I'd encourage you to do perhaps in conversation with a doctor um, and certainly involve a load of other people within. So if that's you, there is no shame. Maybe this practice isn't for you right now. If not, three ways. These are kind of illustrative rather than kind of exhaustive. Um, So first, you could, for example, fast one day a week. The practice of fasting is its own spiritual practice, but fasting is just simply not eating. And you can maybe just not have breakfast, not have lunch, and just but have evening meal. See what happens. What do you feel in that? What kind of comes about? Talk to God about that. Like, it might be nothing, but it might be you suddenly feel a discontent or an anxiety or a kind of, like, a need for something that's beyond just simple hunger. Allow Jesus to speak to you about that. Allow him to show you what's going on beneath the surface. Maybe you could um, uh, do what I did. You could, I don't know, give up snacks for a couple of weeks or not have anything sweet after your main meal for a couple of weeks. Just see what happens. See what God might want to reveal in you through that. Um, just kind of give it a go. You could just eat a boring diet for a week. Just eat the same thing every day. Like, maybe kind of 
variety has become something that actually you're reliant on. Like, just eat the same thing. Or, you know, you know some people are like, oh, it's not a real meal unless you've had meat in it. I, really? Like, I mean, I'm not particularly advertising for vegetarianism, but that, why? Like, maybe give meat up for a week and just see what happens, see what God speaks to you through that. Give it a go. And remember, we're not virtuous for practicing a spiritual practice. It's not like, I practice the spiritual practice of simplicity. Well, congratulations. Like, the benefit of the practice isn't that you are a better Christian for doing it. It's just something you can do to just open yourself up to what God might want to say to you. It's something you can do that will allow God to show you stuff that's beneath the surface that probably you don't notice, probably you've distracted yourself from, probably is normalized in the world around you, so therefore it's quite difficult to spot. But it just opens you up for him to speak into your life. You know, Jesus wants to bring freedom in our lives. He wants to release us from unhealthy dependencies. He wants to heal us because he wants to be people who can be a blessing to others. And when there are things in our lives that are deforming us, dehumanizing us, we are less of a blessing to those who are around us. And he wants to bring us into freedom and into new life. Why? Not because he's harsh, but because he loves us. He points stuff out in us, not to humiliate us or to shame us, but to bless us and to bring us into freedom because he loves us. I'd love for us to pray. Um, If you're able, do you want to stand with me? I'm going to have a big drink. Jesus, we just invite you to come now and speak to us and draw close to us. And just as we're standing here, I just I wonder if this might be just be a moment to just give a bit of space for God to do what he wants to do and to say what he wants to say. And I just encourage you to be open to what he might be wanting to say to you right now. Maybe he's wanting to speak to you about your relationship with food. Jesus speak to you. Just not worry about what's going on around, but just worry about what he might be saying to you right now.